0: I'm really grateful that the Lord has given to this congregation such sweet shepherds. This morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 in our study. Last week we studied the first part of Matthew chapter 2, Jesus clearly comes from a line of kings. That's what Matthew wants to make sure you know. And then it it, it transitions to make it very clear that wise men still seek this shepherd king. The implication is you and I, if we're going to be wise, would be those who would come after this shepherd king and give worship and glory to him. The wise men didn't do what King Herod told them to do. They didn't go back and say, Oh, that's where he is. And so Herod gets furious. But in the passage that we're about to read, God will not allow this Savior of the world to be put to death until such point as he has accomplished salvation for his people. We're going to read Matthew 2, verse 13 through 18. Here's God's Word. Now, when they had departed, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it is such a weighty passage. There's so much sorrow and so much heaviness in what we read, and yet we we recognize how you rescue your son, and so we also know, Lord, that there is rich beauty here, and so we pray as your servants who so desperately need to be nourished on your word, that you would feed us as your sheep, that you would nourish us on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have the ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. And, Lord, finally, we ask that you would be willing to use uh, the likes of me, an ordinary sinful crooked stick, to point this snare away to Christ Jesus. He is our Lord. Amen. A young man had made a public profession of faith in Christ when he was a child. He, he grew up in the church, and uh, now in his 20s, I would describe him as a skeptic. And so I want to I summarize for you the substance of his doubts, and it leads very well into this passage. Uh, he says the New Testament writers uh, were misusing the Old Testament prophets, and what they're doing is they're, they're doing that in order to make sure that they can fit those Old Testament prophets into this made-up story of a Messiah. And prophets were really talking about the next king of Israel or the next king of Judah, or they were talking about the return from exile. They had no concept, he said, of the fact that Jesus was going to claim to be the Christ. And he said, this is the major flaw in Christianity. <clears throat> sometimes I'm gentle with these kind of conversations, sometimes I'm not. In this particular Discussion, I said, actually, it presents a flaw in your understanding of the way Old Testament prophecy works. What did Old Testament prophets know? And why are New Testament prophets, I mean, why are New Testament writers so ready and willing to say that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, when, when they had clearly no concept that, that Jesus, this man, this boy, was going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, the term to describe this is called prophetic foreshortening. And when the prophets in the Old Testament spoke about the things that God gave them to speak, in a sense, they're standing at the lower end of a mountain chain, And and from their vantage point, they can really only see all the mountains blending together. And so it's almost as if that first mountain that they see is the whole of what's there. All they can see is a short-term fulfillment. And so when you come to a place like Matthew, you need to be really clear. The Bible never claims that Hosea and Jeremiah could see how everything was to be fulfilled. The Bible claims that God can see how it was to be fulfilled. And He intends to instruct you and me that this was a long, grand mountain chain of God's redemption. So, what if the Old Testament prophets just saw the first mountain? When Matthew quotes those prophets, he brings the camera lens above the mountain chain so that you recognize the entire biblical story. Sure, the prophets couldn't see it all, but Matthew quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, and he invites you and I to come into the story and recognize how long and beautiful is this chain of God's redeeming love. What did they know? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And then he goes on to say, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you, things in which angels long to look. The prophets were writing for you, for me. Does that weaken the prophets? Does that weaken the gospel writers for misusing the Old Testament prophets? Not in the least. The Bible isn't really written by the prophets. The Bible isn't written by the gospel writers. The Bible is written by God. He's telling this story of redemption. And the fact that he is willing to lift your eyes above the mountain chain so that you can see how these prophetic words connect, that simply serves to give glory to the king. Whose redemption he tells of in the passage that we just read in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew explains two different prophecies, and from those prophecies we learn that God spared his son in order to be able to adopt his children. How does God adopt sinners like you and me so that we become his sons and his daughters? Matthew 2 says, intends to provide an answer to unfaithfulness, an answer to punishment, and then an answer to tears. Every person is unfaithful to God. You've either directly disobeyed God or you failed to obey Him in everything that He's commanded. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that that disobedience and unfaithfulness and sin deserve punishment. Thirdly, your sin and mine create terrible consequences. And these consequences are worthy of tears. And so the prophecy provides first an answer to unfaithfulness. It's probably helpful to know that the time lapse between the gifts of the Magi and the flight from Bethlehem was probably not more than one to three days. So no sooner had the wise men left than Herod realized that they haven't come back on that six mile walk to let him know where the child is. And now for the second time, an angelic messenger speaks to Joseph in a dream. He says, verse 13, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for he is about to search for the child to destroy him. Once again, we read this passage. We're meant to affirm Joseph's faith. He's obedient to God even when it's not Convenient. Verse 14, he rose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. You should picture this. Middle of the night, Joseph wakes up from this dream, and he stirs Mary, and he says, I know this sounds crazy. We've got to move to Egypt right now. Egypt is 90 miles south of Bethlehem. You go get our boy, I'm going to go get the donkey and load him up. No, I don't really know how we're going to make ends meet. Grab the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and maybe that's how we'll take care of ourselves. The Bible says they left Egypt. I mean, they left Bethlehem and moved to Egypt, and they stayed there until Herod dies. dies. Now, Matthew tells us about these events as they happened. It's it's fact. But while these events take place in real life, at ground level, there's something that's happening at at a 10,000-foot level. God says what Hosea said 740 years earlier matters right now. And This would have meant a great deal to those first readers. It's actually a profound comfort for you and me. And here the concept of of prophetic foreshortening is really important to to Matthew. From this 10,000-foot spot, the ancient word of the prophet Hosea rings through the text. And here's the point. God is doing more, infinitely more, than Mary and Joseph can see in the moment. And what he's doing pertains to your salvation. That's the reason Matthew keeps using this phrase. He loves it this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. He did it in Matthew chapter 1 verse 22, here again in 2.15, in a moment in 2.17. He does it again in 8.17, 12.17, 13.35, 21.4, 27.9. Matthew loves this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Why does he love it so much? Because in the Bible, the concept of, of sonship is a very old idea. Not too many weeks back, we studied Exodus four twenty-two, where God told Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And so the implication, of course, was that God must physically free the Hebrew people from slavery in order to make it possible for them to give wholehearted devotion to God. In other words, in order for them to live out what it means to be a son, I must set them free. It was a physical picture to explain a spiritual reality. God must free sinners from serving these lesser masters so that no one else can have a claim on their allegiance as sons. How did the rest of the story of the Old Testament go? God did deliver the Hebrew people from physical bondage. And then he gave them his law at Mount Sinai as a a way to explain this is what it looks like to be a faithful son, a faithful daughter. Surely once they're freed, they obey their heavenly father. I mean, what other obstacle could there be towards obedience? The rest of the Old Testament explains that the remaining obstacle to sonship is Israel's unfaithfulness, Israel's failure to be loved was not because God was unwilling, but because God's people couldn't be true to their father. And so through the mouth of the prophet Hosea, God explains the problem, and he shifts the metaphor from a son to a wife. The prophet Hosea was called to marry an unfaithful woman named Gomer. She was called, says the Bible, in very stark terms, a wife of whoredom. She went after other lovers. She actually conceived children from her adultery. All this results in her being mistreated and rejected by everyone that she seeks as her lover. So ugly is the story that by the end she's passed around and bought and sold. What would a faithful husband like Hosea do to an unfaithful wife? God says, You don't have to pay much because she's being sold for less than a slave. Go buy her back. Go buy her back and bring her home. Enter into the the pit of her shame and purchase her out and love her and restore her. Because you see, says God, that's what I've done with Israel. That's what I intend to do. My son ran away. He or she sought love and protection and care from lovers who simply wanted to enslave her. Through the mouth of Hosea, God recounts the story. Hosea 11, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And though Israel was an unfaithful son, God refuses to reject him. How is that possible? Well, the answer is God's hesed, God, God's Steadfast love, his loving kindness. And you wonder when you read a passage from Hosea, how would God's people respond to that? The people began to presume on God's love. Maybe God's more interested in bloodline, as if Hebrew blood, Hebrew genes are more beautiful and acceptable to God than Gentiles. By the time Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there's a lot of presumption. Folks thought that they were spiritual sons of God by virtue of connection to the nation of Israel. And so each time that Matthew connects something to the prophets, he's making a precise point. This is the kind of Savior that you desperately need. And so at one level, Jesus goes down into Egypt with his parents and he stays there until Herod dies, but on a salvation level, verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's Matthew's point? You've never been faithful enough to be God's son. Jesus is God's real son. So that unlike Israel and unlike you and me, Jesus alone displays a heart of obedience that says, this is what it looks like to deeply love your father. You might say, well, Eric, I, I don't know that I can see all that right here in Matthew 2. That's right, you can't. But when you trace the stories of the gospel This active obedience of Christ becomes a central theme of each of the gospel writers. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, they all tell us that Jesus was sent into the wilderness as he began his earthly ministry, and there he was tempted with hunger and thirst, just like Israel was. But more than God's son, Israel, Jesus was actually tempted by Satan himself, And each time he's tempted, Jesus, God's faithful son, answers with words from the book of Deuteronomy to say, I'll be the faithful son that Israel never was, that you never were, that I never was. Why did Jesus have to go to Egypt? Well, of course, it's because Israel's bondage began there, but more than that, it's also where Israel's unfaithfulness started it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality your own unfaithfulness began in bondage to sin but God has called you out and because Jesus is faithful in ways that you have never been faithful you have a savior with a record of perfect love and perfect obedience and it's a record that you could never provide for yourself flight to Egypt It's not just so Mary and Joseph can run and hide. This is God's sovereign protection of his faithful son so that that son can grow to live out obedience that you and I didn't have. And if he dies in infancy, you don't have a faithful son to be your savior. And there is no spotless lamb to be slain for the sins of God's people. It's no wonder he resembles Moses who enters into the place of bondage in order to come out carrying God's children in his arms. God spared his son in order to adopt his children. You ever have doubts about how an unfaithful person like you could ever eventually be saved from his sins. You ever wonder if God's growing tired of your unfaithfulness? You ever think, surely he's getting tired of trying to love me? A passage like this says God is making a definitive statement. And that is this, I am adopting you and you are my son and you are my daughter and I cannot and will not ever grow tired of your unfaithfulness. And I cannot and will not ever cut you off. Because my relationship wasn't really with you about your faithfulness. It was really with Jesus, my true son. He is faithful. So verse 15 is really an answer to unfaithfulness. A true faithful son. Now let's look at an answer to punishment. You've already heard that Herod had a pretty long history of Murdering those who were a threat to his crown. I'm sure you recognize the irony in verse 16. Herod, who lied to the Magi about wanting to be sure to come and worship this newborn king, is suddenly furious when somebody else tricks him, doesn't reveal the location and the identity of the Christ. In his bloodthirsty wrath, he's consistent with everything we know about him from history. A man who's already killed his wife and several of his sons will have no problem killing your sons. If it sounds familiar at this point, it's because we've heard it before. The last time that the Lord sought to bring his son out of Egypt, there was another savage king. Not Herod, but Pharaoh. And when he thought his crown was at risk, he said, kill all the infant baby boys in my region. Back then it was water, here it's sword. But Bethlehem and all the surrounding regions, like two years and younger, the whole thing is, is Herod's way of painting a, a broad brush to make sure that his sword does not miss the Messiah. Was it 10 little boys? Was it 20 little boys? scholars say it couldn't have been more than 30. The numbers don't really soften the tragedy in the least, do they? baby boys who are taken from their mother's arms, toddling boys who are walking beside dad. They're lifted up, they're executed. The first prophecy spoke about a son. This second prophecy speaks about this issue of sorrow. Sorrow that afflicts God's people as a result of sin. These precious babies are executed not for anything that they have done, They are hapless victims of the wicked heart of a petty prince. You didn't even need the quotation from Jeremiah to start crying over the carnage of Herod's sin. You didn't even need to reference Rachel in order to imagine mothers wailing as their babies are kidnapped and and murdered. God says, I'm going to insert, though, right here, a reminder of this prophetic promise. Because when I insert this reminder of that prophetic promise, it will be a balm, a salve to the hearts of my people who grieve, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Context is King. Ramah was a place that sat on the border between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. It's really the central spot between the two kingdoms. And so, when Jeremiah first spoke about Ramah, he saw that this would be the place where foreign armies would would summon the defeated masses from the south and from the north, and from Ramah, he would send them into exile. Israel was sent to Assyria somewhere between 733 and 722 B.C. Judah was sent to Babylon in 586 B.C. Who's Rachel? What's she doing in Jeremiah's prophecy? Surely she's long dead. You remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Rachel is Jacob's favored wife. She gave birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So Jeremiah speaks of Rachel as if she is figuratively still alive and she represents the northern kingdom, the mother of the northern kingdom because that's where Joseph's tribes went. And she represents the southern kingdoms as the mother of those southern kingdoms because that's where Benjamin went. And You might remember how much this woman wanted sons. She she grabbed her husband and she said, Look, you give me children or I die. And so here's what the prophecy meant when Jeremiah said it. God's son, Israel, will suffer punishment. God's son, Judah, will suffer punishment. Exile, slavery, loss of the promised land. It was God's way of disciplining his sons for their unfaithfulness to him. Figuratively speaking, Rachel, who wanted children so badly, weeps as her boys are carried off to slavery and death. Jeremiah 31. And yet, strangely, the rest of Jeremiah 31 is full of comfort, which is what Matthew means to communicate. Yahweh loves his people with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. And from this exile, God will bring back a remnant, Jeremiah 31.7. Whoever is scattered will be regathered, Jeremiah 31.10. The people of Ephraim, those are my darling children, says God, Jeremiah 31.20. So I'm going to make a new covenant with them, Jeremiah 31.31. And here's how this new covenant will work. I'll forgive their sins and I won't remember them anymore, Jeremiah 31.34. How am I going to do this? Through a branch of righteousness. Jeremiah 31 38. Why did God put this fulfillment right here in Matthew 218? Because in Jeremiah's day the message was clear. Yes, you will for a moment suffer punishment for your sins, but I will be gracious to you, and your punishment will not last forever. Every Jew who read Matthew's gospel knew that the exile in Israel and Judah was to punish them for their sins. And yet God poured tender words on his people when they were the ones who were guilty of sin. Rachel is crying over regret and and loss. These babies in Bethlehem are not taken away because of their own sins, though. And yet in a moment, everyone who reads this, everyone who lived it still remembers the sting from sin. In this case, it wasn't their sin. It was Herod's sin. His sin reeks of consequences suffered unnecessarily. So Matthew says, I would invite you to pause here for just a moment. I invite you to sit and absorb the reality. Sin really does have consequences. And someone always suffers because of sin So when Matthew applies this to a slaughter in Bethlehem, he's applying a balm of comfort to sinners. And he's doing it by way of a greater to lesser comparison. The greater. In Jeremiah's day, God's people suffered a direct consequence for their own actual sins. They were exiled. But if God was gracious to them, what comfort does he have for you? when it isn't even your own sin that caused your suffering. I imagine that when bad things happen, there's a tendency for all of us to presume that, that, that what we feel is some kind of punishment for our sins. You think Jane and John Doe in Bethlehem beat their own chest and thought, Lord, what have I done? God, I'm so sorry. Please bring my son back. But this Jeremiah prophecy is is sitting on the shoulders of Christ so that Rachel and these Bethlehem parents know the story's not finished. The whole thing is God's answer to punishment. On one hand, Herod will not have the last word. Verse 19, Herod died. And apart from faith in Christ, Herod suffers now the eternal consequences of his actual sin. I, I know that didn't lessen the pain of loss for grieving parents in the moment, but this will. God's real son, his faithful son, went down into Egypt, into the proverbial place of suffering, so that God's adopted sons and daughters wouldn't have to go there. So if Jeremiah said God is full of grace, Matthew says, here's how that's possible. For those who rest by faith in God's true Son, my adopted sons will not have to suffer eternal exile for their actual sins. How's that an answer to punishment? Ultimately, it's very good that Jesus go down into Egypt. God sent Christ into exile first in Egypt, but then eventually at the cross. And he did that so that none of God's adopted sons and daughters would ever be sent into exile eternally. William Hendrickson explained it like this. He says, the branch of righteousness, that faithful son that you and I need as a savior will return from Egypt in order to save all those who place their trust in him. Don't cry, Rachel. The ruler born in Bethlehem will return and say, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he'll say, Again, Matthew 11, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for for the kingdom of heaven is made up for such as these. God spared his own son in order to adopt his children. How does God adopt sinners like you and me to be his own sons and daughters? Well, what does salvation require? It required a faithful son, and this is God's answer. It required a punishment for sin, and this is God's answer. But finally, there's an answer to tears. Revelation chapter 12 tells this exact same story, but it is in a vision given to John. And it says that that what you just read in Matthew 2 is actually the cosmic battle of human history. The Apostle John sees a woman in the sky, and she is radiant and beautiful, but she's in pain of childbirth. Suddenly, to the edge of the screen moves a, a wretched, ugly dragon. And the dragon is, is prepared to pounce and devour the child that the woman is about to give birth to. With a twitch of his tail, he, he lashes and one-third of the stars fall from the sky. It's just collateral damage from his evil like babies in Bethlehem, like babies in Goshen. The dragon is Fixed to snatch the baby from the woman the moment she gives birth. And she gives birth, and then the dragon lunges towards the baby. And Revelation 12, 5 says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then it says, A war broke out in heaven. God's angel Michael did battle with the dragon, and the dragon is thrown to earth. And in wrath, the dragon repeatedly tries to get at the woman and to get at the son, but she can't. And Matthew chapter 2 is that account. Herod is is one in a long line of instruments in the hand of Satan that seeks to destroy God's faithful son, but he can't. Christmas is that event. The virgin gave birth to a son. God became man and took on flesh, and he lived a perfect life, and he refuses to give up his life until the moment he is ready to lay it down as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Satan didn't take the life of Jesus, God gave it up willingly so that he might adopt sons and daughters to be welcomed into his family, Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And that's where you live, and the Bible says that we should not be surprised that Rachel weeps sometimes. We shouldn't be surprised that the mothers in Bethlehem weep sometimes. We should recognize that this really is a cosmic battle and the, the dragon gives you moments and reasons to weep. I wonder what makes you cry today. What makes your heart heavy with loss and pain? What is it that still stings? What sins of your own do you grieve over? What sins from others still sting your heart? Well, the whole thing is a cosmic battle. From the Garden of Eden, there is enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman, and the enmity is really the story of the Bible. And it is the only explanation for the pain, sorrow, and suffering that you and I face in this life. But Satan cannot get at God's true son, which is why the revelation concludes with a new heavens and a new earth which comes down and God wipes away the tears of every one of his people because the dragon can't get the son. The son conquers the dragon. And when the son conquers the dragon, sons and daughters are redeemed. God spared his son in order to adopt his children. It is my prayer for you that this Christmas you would know the rich beauty of your own sonship, having been called and loved by a faithful son. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. It's more rich and beautiful than what we can quite often see. We pray that you would plant your word in our hearts, that we might know you and love you and enjoy the blessing of being adopted sons and daughters of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.